Right now, everybody is talking about cryptocurrency, and the cybercriminals are hiding in the conversation. Cybercriminals use social engineering loaded with urgency and fear to successfully prey on your company, your employees, and your customers. Spear phishing is just one of 13 types of email threats. Barracuda has identified these 13 types and shows you how you can protect your company, your customers, and your reputation. Find out about the 13 email threat types and Barracuda email protection. Get your free ebook at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content and subscribe to all of our shows at securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. You can subscribe to uh, all of our shows via your favorite podcast app. We're in all the podcast places. And we have a Discord server, uh, mailing list, and streaming platforms all available on securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Here with me for uh, our hosts, Mandy, Jeff, Tyler, and Sam. We're kind of crunched in the uh, in the time, but Mandy, Jeff, Tyler, Sam, all say hi. 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 Yay. Hello. Thank you hello, for hello, hello. joining us, illustrious co-hosts. This segment is sponsored by Devo. Make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash Devo. Uh, our interview is with Michael Meese. He's the associate CISO at the University of Kansas Health System. And uh, my teleprompter is cut off, so I'm going to have to switch to something else. For the moment, I do apologize. Um, so uh, Michael is an Army veteran with over 13 years of experience and is here today to discuss how the history of warfare has influenced modern-day cybercrime and how cyber leaders can shift to a victory mindset. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Nice to have you. Michael, how'd you get your start in information security? Uh, I had one of the more direct paths, to be totally honest. Um, you know, a lot a lot of people kind of backed into it in our industry. And uh, I, I joined the Army in 2008 because I, I wanted to do something different and got immediately into tactical communications and, and communication encryption. And so then it just kind of naturally dovetailed from there into the larger discipline of information security. And so when I got out of the Army, I, I started doing um, support for the federal government as a consultant and did that for about seven or eight years uh, before I went over to the private sector where I've been uh, working for the past four years now. Excellent. So, uh, I mean, obviously you have a background in what we would call warfare, right? Military background. Mm -hmm. Um, how does that apply to what we do today in information security? Yeah, it's really fascinating because when you look at, at warfare throughout history, um, the weapons have changed, the actors have changed, um, but the, the, the strategies that are employed are largely the exact same as they have been for thousands of years. They're just applied a little bit differently when new weapons enter uh, into the battlefield. And so uh, we saw that with the invention of the firearm and the invention of the airplane and the bomb, et cetera. Um, however, when 
you, when you look at what we're actually doing and the strategies that are being applied, it's remarkably similar. And so applying that to information security, what, what has really happened is new weapons and new players have entered the battlefield that have allowed us to spread into a new domain of warfare um, in cyberspace. And we've seen, especially over the past decade, that now cyberspace is able to have an impact on um, real world events. We're seeing that jump from cyberspace into kinetic warfare. But again, those strategies are staying the same. And so when you're talking about information security and you're looking at threat actors and the common methods that we've used for a long time of you know understanding your adversary and then employing countermeasures so that that adversary can't operate, that's the exact same thing we do in information security. And it's the exact same thing that we've done in warfare for years. And so I always encourage everyone to really um, spend time understanding warfare strategy, particularly when you're in an incident response role, um, because the role that you occupy is that of a soldier um, within warfare. And so by being able to understand those tactics that they're employing and the countermeasures that you should be employing, it helps you to understand um, what you're doing in the larger theater of, of cyber war. Is there like a, a, a difference in how we should relate like war versus a battle? Because I kind of think that oftentimes we talk about the relation between, you know, cyber warring and physical war. But mm -hmm. also there's like when you have an incident, it's more like a battle. Is that is that like a valid analogy and help people think about it? better? Yes, 100%. Um, one of the things that I, I talk a lot about is about instilling what, what, I, what I call and several people call a victory mindset. Um, and so in order to really instill a victory mindset, you have to understand what victory means for your organization. And that is that's winning your war. Um, but we also know that in every war, there are multiple battles and some of them you win and some of them you lose. You're taking World War II, for example, it, it's very clear um, the, the Allies won World War II, but there were a variety of battles throughout that entire war where we suffered losses, um, where we were not victorious on the battlefield. And so by understanding what victory means within war to your organization, when you do lose those battles, um, it's not defeating. It's not something that's going to break your entire organization because you're focused on winning the larger picture instead of just winning every single individual little battle, which generally is not realistic for most organizations, just like it's not realistic for most armies. I feel like there's a lot of times where we're like, yeah, I know I'm not going to win that kind of battle so i'm gonna do something different right <laughs> right jeff someone do you guys have questions i, I was how just is, curious kind of how are how are some of the the distinctions between cyber warfare and traditional warfare where we have um rules of engagement and adversaries that don't often play by the rules or are integrated with inside of multiple organizations that either play by the rules or have kinetic impact or are doing illegal activities and therefore have a criminal impact. What are some yeah. of the, the nuances there from a traditional warfare standpoint versus a cyber warfare standpoint? That's definitely where it gets far more complicated. Um, it, it used to be that, you know, you knew who was attacking you. Um, you don't often know that in cyberspace. 
Uh, one of the interesting things about there too is uh, as private organizations or non-military organizations, we are only allowed to defend. Um, we're not allowed to, nor would it probably be productive for us to launch counter offenses. And so uh, we are, we're, we're on a specific slice of warfare, um, whereas our military partners and our federal partners engage in more of the offensive security meant to impose costs and disrupt enemy operations. Um, where things are, are significantly different, um, first is just the velocity of everything that happens. Um, it, everything happens faster in cyberspace. And, and that's something that we've seen with war throughout the years um, is that it constantly gets faster. It used to be you had to march an army across several miles of land in order to reach your enemy. Then we got horses. Then we were able to start building machinery like boats and planes and cars, et cetera, that allowed us to get there faster. And now in cyberspace, you can hit anywhere in the world instantaneously. Um, the other part that is significantly different um, has to do with what's called symmetric and asymmetric warfare. And so um, historically, symmetric warfare was the only kind where the battles were really meaningful. Um, when you had asymmetric warfare, you would have one large army that was going against a significantly smaller or less equipped army. And we saw a shift throughout the years where even those smaller armies became much more um, effective. When you look at even the Iraq war, where we were fighting kind of civilian militias that were highly effective um, at you know dealing losses against a much more well-equipped army. But then in cyberspace, that got put on steroids. And now we have you know, small groups of people or sometimes individuals who are able to um, leverage a significant capabilities against a country and cause significant damage, um, even though they may be just a very small group of individuals. And so I, I would say those are probably some of the larger distinctions um, that where it has shifted. Um, and and where it, it changes some of the ways that you have to approach um, your defense strategy and uh, and how you're going to mitigate some of those threats. Can a lot of this mindset be taught and integrated into current training where you're doing things like tabletop exercises, you're working with you know, legal HR, PR, all of the things that you do as part of an incident? Can some of that be front loaded so that this can be uh, more muscle memory and developed into something like a playbook or a run book? I, I would go farther than to say it can be, and I would say that it has to be in order for it to be ef ef effective. So I, I mentioned a bit about um, kind of defining what victory means to your organization. Um, cybersecurity does not define that. Um, so within your cybersecurity org, you may have a vision and a mission statement for your team, which is a very important part of defining victory. But defining victory needs to happen at the organizational level. Um, we need to be able to say, um, these are our business objectives, and these are the losses or potential losses that we're willing to tolerate in cyberspace in order to achieve those objectives. Um, it, you know, it's called a risk threshold in a lot of organizations. Somewhere it's called a loss threshold. But the general idea is, is if we stay under this, we still consider ourselves successful. Um, obviously, cybersecurity or information security isn't going to own that parameter. So it needs to be set by your board of directors, your board of trustees, your president, whoever those really highest level decision makers are. And then decisions that are made in the incident response process need to go in with that understanding of 
that's our goal. That's where we're trying to stay under. And so the actions that we take are in order to keep the organization within that defined loss parameter. Um, the, the other way that it needs to be impacted is after you set that organizational risk threshold, then you need to have another conversation with your uh, business owners, like a director, a VP, somebody who owns that line of business, and have a very similar conversation, but specific to their line of business. And so when there's loss impacting their their piece of the business or their line of business, we can again make a decision within those loss parameters so that we keep that victory uh, criteria at the forefront with every incident response decision that we're making. Do you think some of this will come into regulatory bodies and or frameworks uh, as well as like schooling and education? I think this is very important message and a, a much different approach than most places take. So you're kind of your response, your regulatory body, your um, the places in which you have to report breach data to, as well as the after action reports, uh, all those places, I believe, have the ability to have a, a much broader impact if they're considering uh, this different mindset shift. Yes, I think it will. And I think we've kind of already started to see it in, in a couple of ways or precursors of it, at least. So um, cyber risk quantification has started to become very mainstream. And one of the ways that I think that's going to impact regulation is when you start talking about um, cybersecurity and information security incidents in monetary terms, um, it allows you to start to understand the impact to the organization in monetary terms. And so when you're having those conversations, then you can start to understand what could we lose and still be okay? What can we lose and still be able to reach our objectives? So we've seen more regulation that is um, encouraging or at least um, expressing that people should be exploring um, cyber risk quantification or robust risk management processes. Um, and I think we're going to see that continue to bleed into the incident response space and particularly the decisions that our SOC makes um, during the incident response process um, within that framework of acceptable loss and acceptable risk for the organization. I think it's really important to highlight that in an in incident response scenario to have the incident responders understand what's most important and put resources towards protecting that when there is an incident. Just want to call that out. Like I, th I think that's that's really smart because I think they oftentimes they get like this notion that like they have to protect everything equally. And if you try and do that, you're you're going to lose, and maybe in some random way, right? It's like lose on on purpose almost, right? But protect what's most important. Right. We we've. For a long time, there was kind of this implied idea that we were that a successful security organization had zero breaches. Um, you know, we saw it with the questions coming from CEOs and CFOs saying, "How secure are we?" Or, um, you know, your job is to keep me out of the news. Um, and as we've kind of evolved as a discipline, we've realized that that's impossible. Um, we are going to be targeted at some point. And so it's important that we have a strategy to still win even when that happens. And um, and by defining that loss criteria, it helps us focus on um, the most important things for the organization. You know, some people call them crown jewels, some people call them key assets, uh, critical assets, whatever you want to call them, but understanding that 
if I don't protect these, the organization fails to achieve their their victory criteria, meaning that, you know, when all else fails, we need to put up a shield around these. And this is where we stop. This is our keep. This is what we defend at all costs. Sam? Have you, uh, at my organization, people resist this. They don't want to hear that they are less important than another division. Hmm. Do you have any uh, guidelines of how to explain this in a way that will inspire less resistance from people? Yeah, that, that's a great question um, because it, it is, it's not something comfortable. Everybody wants to hear they're special. Everybody wants to hear they're critical. Um, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, this is also where I see cyber risk quantification being um, very um, applicable is because when we have very vague terms around how important or how critical something is, um, it's easy for people to have very religious arguments about how important they are to the organization. But when you start expressing things in monetary terms and you can talk about drivers of business revenue and um, and what something does to enable revenue generation, then you start to have less religious arguments and have more business dis- discussions around what does your what does your piece of the organization actually do to drive revenue? Um, at the core of every single organization, whether it's nonprofit, for profit, is revenue generation. And so, by by focusing on the money aspect of it, it takes a lot of the emotion out of it and gets people to have much more uh, productive business discussions around what they do to do to uh, help the organization with its core mission of driving revenue. So, Michael, in the FutureCon um, keynote that you gave around this, you brought up being able to build your team around the idea of excellence. And mm-hmm. you also said that if you never define victory, it's almost certain that you will never achieve it. And yep. I liked how you tied in the Afghan war. Like that was, to me, it was very, very tangible to see how burnout happened. And I liked how you tied together kind of the idea of excellence and then being able to figure out what victory was and overcoming burnout, which we know is really big in the InfoSec community. Yep. What are other ideas or what do you have more to say on that? Um, and what are like an example of what's a metric of excellence that you would build into the team? That's a, a great question. So it, it all starts by identifying what, what behavior you're trying to drive within your team um, and then building a, a metric backward from there of what it means to actually achieve that. I, I use football a lot as an analogy um, because it's, it's a very clean way of building metrics, metrics of success. But you talk about a football team, American football, and the goal is to uh, win the football game. And so the way to do that is to, number one, stop the other team from scoring touchdowns and then score touchdowns yourself. And if you take that another layer back, then what helps you score touchdowns? Well, catching a touchdown pass, running in for a touchdown, gaining yards, et cetera. And so you can kind of decompose of this is where we're trying to go. And these are the steps that help us get there. So when you're thinking about from an incident response scenario, um, what is our goal in an incident response scenario? It's to isolate, it's to respond as quickly as possible, isolate and contain that threat and limit the amount of loss associated with that event. 
And so um, when you start decomposing that down, that's how you end up with things like mean time to detect, mean time to respond, et cetera, that helps you to better understand how effective um, that group is at achieving that objective. And so the, the number one advice that I give to everyone when you're talking about metrics and talking about building towards excellence is first understand what is that group or that individual even first trying to accomplish? And then what would be indicators that mean they are driving towards that objective and achieving it successfully? And when you start decomposing it down like that, you'll start to find that a lot of the metrics start to write themselves um, because it's it's just very obvious that when somebody is doing the right things, these metrics start to show up. What what are some of those right things, Michael? Well, and before he answers that, can I throw yeah, in something ahead, else Eddie. from the keynote? <laughs> because I really think this is a key point. And it was about um, to move to be a business enabler and not the office of no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that kind of ties in, like the whole mindset of being victory and in what Paul was asking. So go ahead about not being the office of no. Yeah, so that's again something that we we've, we've been famous for throughout the years is we say no, we know all of the threats that are out there and and we see them in our sleep every time somebody brings up some cool idea to the business. Um this goes back to being able to set that that loss or risk threshold and associated with the business is it really helps us to not be the office of no and start to partner with people to achieve their objectives. So, for example, um, when we're setting a risk threshold, we're saying that we are we are headed towards these business objectives. We're willing to accept X amount of risk of Y amount of loss in order to achieve those. When a product manager or someone along those lines comes and says, we want to install this new feature because it's going to be awesome and our users are going to love it, and it falls outside of that risk threshold, then instead of saying no, what we're actually saying is this falls outside of the risk threshold established by your leadership not by cybersecurity, not by information security, it was set by your leadership. And so we're going to partner with you around what you can do to mitigate that risk, to bring it down within the thresholds that your leadership has authorized. So instead of being the one who told them no, you've now become a partner um, in that project to an, enable them a, a path forward um, instead of just saying, no, you can't do that. And then it becomes an escalating um, or back and forth, essentially, of who's going to get approval. Yeah, it's uh, almost like they become the office of no. Like what you, you yes. already said, but they're like, I really want to do that anyway. But no, you said that that was a bad idea. <laughs> right. Right. Having those kind of layers of conversations allows for you to first set that threshold away from any individual project that they might be kind of emotionally attached to. Yeah. Um, and so then you have that buy-in and have that set up before um, that emotional attachment comes in and then allows you to kind of elevate the conversations that you have going forward, um, even when they do tend to get emotionally attached to a particular project or excited about a new feature that they might be adding. I did want to speak tactically for a moment, right? Because it kind of ties into like, what what are those things that you do to to be successful? And I would hope that folks have a plan, an incident response plan that also incorporates ransomware, but what are like, like your ransomware today, you've got 20,000 
workstations, 10,000 of them have been ransomware. What are the yeah. first th three things that should be like on your list to tackle immediately? So the first one of those is um, should be the first one of everyone's playbook, which is try to isolate the threat, um, understand where the infection happened, where patient zero is, and then try to isolate it as quickly as possible. Um, we've seen ransomware events that are just accelerating every single day. Um, I, I don't recall the um, exact event, but they were able to obtain full domain compromise in under four hours after initial infection. And um, and so we're seeing that accelerate. And so it's it's important that the the SOC and the incident responders have enough decentralized command that they can um, work to create that isolation as quickly as possible without executive approval and without you know having to talk to five different people before they take each action. Um, the second of those is then to engage your incident response process at the organizational level, um, not just within your cybersecurity or incident response team. Get legal involved, get privacy involved, get your executive team involved, um, because a ransomware incident where you've already got 50% of your hosts impacted, um, that's an organizational event that's going to be impacting everyone. And so it needs to be um, approached as an organizational incident and not just as a security incident. There will be PR to manage, et cetera, and you don't want to be doing that all in a vacuum. Um, and then the third is a little bit counterintuitive, but I would send half of my team home. Um, ransomware incidents um, are not going to be resolved quickly. They take time, um, usually a couple weeks, in order to do them of round-the-clock um, remediation and containment efforts. And so it becomes very, very quickly a marathon rather than a sprint. And so it's really important that you manage that burnout of your team for them to be um, fresh for the long run. Even if you're bringing in external uh, uh, consultants to help out with the incident response efforts, your team is still going to need to be involved. So it's important to pace yourself from the very beginning and pace your team um, when uh, the the first um, inclination is our kind of all hands on deck approach. Um, but you've got to resist that panic, pace yourself, send some of your team home, let them rest, let them prepare for that marathon that is coming so that um, we're, we're fresh for the long haul instead of just for the first 24, 36 hours. I love that third one, yeah. by the way, because it, it yeah, I also very, love that third one. It's very counterintuitive and not something I've heard uh, a lot in, in very often, Michael. And I think that's great advice because, yeah, you're right. Your first inclination is to go, well, we have ransomware, like all hands on deck right away. And to send yeah. half your team home sounds ludicrous on the surface when right. you first verbalize. And then you're like, oh, no, like that actually makes like a lot of yeah. sense. Does that also mean that many of your managers and the leadership needs to preemptively have some of the teams uh, designed and understood from a personality standpoint, who operates well under stress, who should handle the first few hours, what teams work well together, which departments do we have political capital with inside of that we can uh, bring additional resources into the fold early on? Uh, are all those part of kind of the the preemptive planning and that victory mindset of of working as a collaborative team? Yes, absolutely. Um, so it, it's um, it's one of the things that I've talked about before is 
becoming a part of the business and being a collaborator across the organization. And it's for exactly these scenarios like this is you don't want to be meeting somebody for the first time um, when a ransomware incident is going on it, it, within the leadership ranks. And so it's important for leadership to proactively build bridges across the organization so that when you do need to talk to somebody, when you do need to engage with a business unit, you have relationships that you can rely on that is going to allow your team to move much faster. Um, I've always viewed relationship building as a core part of any leadership role uh, because it's those relationships that you build enables and empowers your team to move faster and be more effective. You also have to know your team inside and out. Um, again, going back to warfare is we. anytime you talk about a military, ar army, marine squad, um, everyone understands their fire team and everyone understands who is effective and what roles. And so, you know, you don't put the smallest person um, at the front to kick in a door because we know they're the smallest person and they may struggle with that. Um, and so understanding what strengths and weaknesses and opportunities that your team has at a very personal level allows you to create that staffing plan that is going to allow um, people to be successful in the long run. Because again, we're, we're starting with an outcome of containing and recovering from this ransomware incident and working backward from there. And so if you put all your all-stars, everyone who's cool under pressure all on one shift, and then um, other, everyone else who's not very good under pressure and has difficulty making decisions in a snap all on another shift, you're going to see this ebb and flow of the effectiveness of your team. Whereas if you can start to branch some of them out and um, level that out to where you've got different strengths and opportunities um, of individuals across all of those shifts, it allows you to maintain a level of effectiveness that ultimately is going to allow you to reach those objectives a lot faster. Have you seen that help protect against burnout? I mean, if the person is happy with how you have assigned them and they agree with it, do you think that that also helps protect against burnout? Yes, of course. Um, absolutely. So we we all have things we like more and things that we like less. Um, some people like doing paperwork. Some people like operating at very quick speed. Some people love um, vague objectives. Some people like to be handed a checklist and, and go to work on that. And I think when a leader takes time to understand what um, someone is most effective and what really energizes them, um, it makes them feel less burnt out. Um, for example, I get bored very, very quickly. If somebody asked me to go do the same job every day for eight hours a day, I would, I'd be ready to quit after a day. Um, but you send me into a job where I have constantly changing priorities, new things things to do, new things to jump into. Um, that's somewhere where I feel energized at the end of the day. And so it's about understanding um, your team and then putting them into a role that allows them to do what is what where their strength is at. And you'll see that they feel more energized. They're often much more productive and then um, avoid burnout over longer periods of time because it feels less like work than uh, what some of those boring tasks might be. Well, I have a question for you. Like, what is something simple or something that have happened daily that allows you to feel some form of victory with your job? So I, I've, 
I like, I'm a very achievement oriented person. Um, I've kind of always been that way. And so uh, every night before I go to bed, I write three things that I want to accomplish the, the next day. And so as long as I get those three things done, I feel as if I've won the day, so to speak. Um, it's a practice that I encourage everyone to do. I think everyone at some level is achievement oriented. Um, and so if you can know what you're wanting to accomplish by the end of that day, whether you know that's in the middle of a ransomware incident or just doing your job day to day, if you know what you're trying to accomplish by the end of that 24 hours, um, by having that checked off, you can know that you've achieved your objective. And I think it's a really tremendous feeling for people to um, feel better about their day, but then also make sure that you're moving towards an objective that is meaningful. So it sounds like giving yourself some freedom to go ahead and revel in that victory of the day, even if it was something rather small. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, sometimes my... my uh, objectives are um, almost laughable with how small that they are. Um, it could be something as you know, something as making sure I spend 15 minutes meditating or finish a chapter of a book. Um, and it could be really, really small. And sometimes they're, they're rather large. Um, but being able to accomplish those. And then when I go to write the list for the next day, I see the three things that I accomplished for that day. And it makes me feel like my day was a success and it's right before I go to bed. And so I go to bed feeling like I won. Um, and I think that's a really powerful feeling, not only for me, but for a lot of people. Michael, I have a task for you. Um, <laughs> I, you need to drink some of that Angel's Envy. It's on the shelf. Behind That's my task. For I you. just got it, so I, I haven't cracked into it yet. There you go. <laughs> awesome. That'll Good be stuff. my objective for Saturday. Perfect. Perfect. As long as it gets on the list, I love it. So I, it'll I be part a, of the hold, hey, hold, hold on, Jeff. Hi, everyone. It's been hey, a while Jeff. Since I, I've been at security. Welcome week. back. Uh, thank you. Um, so I, I'm kind of still stuck on your your analogy at the very beginning uh, where you talked about World War II, where we lost the battles and won the war. And of yep. course, I grew up in the Vietnam era where we won the battles and lost the war. Uh, so how are you describing victory again? Mm -hmm. Good analogy. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's an excellent point. Um, and... Uh, she mentioned earlier about um, during this kind of larger form talk that I give around this topic, I talked about the Afghan war, um, which is a very, very similar scenario to the Vietnam war. And so when you look at both of those conflicts, we went in um, with very unclear objectives on what we wanted to accomplish in order to declare victory. And so we we won a lot of battles. Um, we knew that we wanted to win each of those battles, but it was very unclear how that was going to connect to a larger definition of victory. And so you know, the result of those is you spend millions or sometimes trillions of dollars um, fighting that war and winning battles, but you get 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And what have we actually accomplished towards victory? Um, and so that that's why I always say that it's important to start with that victory criteria and then work backward, because if you're just focused on winning battles, you'll probably win a lot of them. Um, but are they going to actually achieve your victory criteria? Probably not. Um, and so uh, 
I'm, I'm much well less versed or much less versed in the Vietnam War than I am in the Afghanistan War. But um, you look at that and, and we took several uh, provinces throughout Afghanistan. We drove um, pretty much all of our adversaries back into the mountains uh, where nobody goes in for victory. Uh, but we we did that for 20 years. And then when we left, we lost everything within a couple of weeks. And it was because we didn't know what we wanted out of Afghanistan. And so we just kept fighting. We kept winning battles. And when you look at that in the information security space, it's very easy to do the exact same. If we're just focused on containing malware, if we're just focused on you know completing threat intelligence or um, launching our new security product, are we winning those battles? Yeah, sure. Are we doing something that helps our victor or helps our organization achieve victory? Unlikely, uh, because we don't even know what victory is. Well, given that you know, I'll cat caveat my comments with you know all analogies break down at some point um yep. what i'm hearing you say is which i agree with uh, and i would say it a little bit differently but uh uh you know sort of having a pragmatic realistic understanding of you know what goals or you're trying to accomplish in an organization i mean you touched on it early on uh, in terms of, you know, most companies, at least in the private sector, are in it to, to earn revenue. I, I yeah. often talk about how there's really only two risks for commercial organizations, the impact on revenue, the revenue stream, mm -hmm. and and all the associated costs that go into, you know, doing what you're doing to protect the, the revenue stream. I mean, everything we talk about really boils down to those two things, in my opinion. Uh, I, I like to try to simplify things, especially you know, since you know, I, I do consulting is my day job. And most of the companies I work with, um, they don't have military background. They don't necessarily have institutional knowledge in terms of cybersecurity and or security in general. They just, you know, you know, they sell women's clothing. They 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 pump gas at gas pumps. Uh, you know that. I work in the PCI space, so a lot of retailers, a lot of merchants. Um, so I, I, I think it's helpful to use analogies. Uh, I, I found it fascinating as I was, uh, you know, reading the the topic for this talk today, because uh, having come out of the government myself and coming out at the sort of the beginning of the the dot com era in this whole thing that's that you know, started with how do we make it take advantage of the internet. Um, you know, the people that were responsible for security in the old days were pretty much the military and the government and the DOD, mm -hmm. uh, organizations like what I came from, NSA. Uh, <laughs> the the model for inter the early Internet security was really modeled after military tactics. And I've, I'm kind of a, the opinion these days that uh, that was kind of short-sighted and doesn't really work. You know, the whole concept of establishing a perimeter and and you know, putting your most valuable assets deep in the bowels of your your enterprise and your network, and so on and so forth. Um, so I find it fascinating uh, that you're you're trying to use military as an analogy to try to, to try to promote doing the right things. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think there's much more to the conversation that could be had, but I guess for me, the bottom line is to try to simplify it, put it in language that your your clients, your customers understand. Try to relate to them, uh, you know, 
in terms of victory, you know, to use your terminology, what is it you're trying to accomplish? What is it? What is it that you have to protect beyond the revenue stream? What does that translate into? And just sort of whittle it down into. Uh, you know, I work with companies that don't know what sensitive data is and the concept of sensitive data, which is mostly what we're talking about. Usually, uh, you know, trying to keep keep secrets secret and trying to keep the data protected and so on and so forth. Um, but still, I'm fascinated from a SOC perspective and, I, and everything talking about incidents and responding to incidents, minimizing the damages. Uh, I would think a lot of people would consider victory as the SOC has nothing to do because everything's been done to secure the environment and we don't need or, 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 or there's not much to do for, for the SOC in terms of response. Thoughts? Yeah, agreed. I mean, in a perfect world, you're right, we would have security that makes the SOC irrelevant, um, which is where I think it, it it adds that kind of realistic and pragmatic layer that you were talking about of having a, an understanding of what are pragmatic goals or what are realistic goals. We know that zero attacks are not a realistic goal. We know that not having a SOC is not a realistic goal for most organizations. Um, and so then you've got to look at what what are we actually trying to do, which is where I get to the revenue generation portion of it is, um, as you mentioned, you know, no revenue or no organization is going to exist without revenue generation. Um, even if that's, you know, donations off of um, GoFundMe, that's still some type of revenue coming into the organization that allows them to exist and pay their bills. And so it's important for us to understand those revenue generation goals, where the money train comes into the organization, what happens to it while it's in the organization, um, and then where it goes outside of the organization organization because that that is where threat actors are targeting because they know that if they can disrupt that money train um, that's we're, we're going to pay money in order to get it moving again so I think that if you understand the goals of the organization from a business perspective then you can work backward from there to determine realistic goals for your security team um, that allows you to focus on the right things. Michael, that's awesome stuff. I wanted to uh, thank you so much for appearing on Paul's Security Weekly. Unfortunately, we're, we're out of time uh, for this Thanks segment. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 